Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus. And I am Phyllis Zimbler-Miller. Our guest today just returned from Israel, where she volunteered in jobs to support the Israeli people in wartime. Sarah Bloom is the founder and the chair of the board of directors of Hebrew Public, an American charter school organization that teaches Hebrew to children of all backgrounds. She's also the vice chair of the Steinhardt Foundation for Jewish Life that seeks to revitalize Jewish identity in America. She was an editor and contributor to several mainstream and Jewish media. Thank you, Sarah, for coming on our show. We're eager to hear about your experiences in Israel. Thank you, Phyllis, and thank you, Evelyn, so much for having me. So tell us how soon after October 7th you decided that you had to go to Israel yourself to see what was really happening and how you could help. I knew when it happened that I would go at my first opportunity. Um, my oldest son lives in Tel Aviv. Um, my family has deep roots and a lot of connections in Israel. The soonest that I could go was on my children's winter break. I still have kids in um, live at home. I have six kids and I have an eighth grader and a 10th grader. So I knew that winter break we would go. So when was that? Um, let's see. We went from the... 21st, I think we left of December and we went for 10 days and they were meaningful days. Um, I went, I'm divorced and remarried actually. So my husband went for a month to volunteer a little bit before I left. Um, and then I went with my parents who um, are, they won't be happy that I'm saying this, but they're 81 and 83. Um, and so we went and we took our time and really saw the devastation. We went down south. We spent a number of days there. We spoke with the families of the hostages. Um, we spoke with the people who are really doing amazing work at Brothers and Sisters for Israel. Um, we tried to get a number of different senses of what was going on. We spoke with all our friends and all the people who we love who are in Israel. Um, you know, one of the one of the simplest things of going that mattered to me was just just to be there, just to go and tell people we love them, that we in America were feeling their pain. Um, on an economic level, I was excited to go and spend some money and see if I could support some artists there. Um, I, I sort of first came to this realization. Um, Evelyn, you mentioned I have a network of uh, charter schools that teach Hebrew in America. Um, and in December or late November, I had dinner with 13 Hebrew teachers that live here. They're Israelis that live in New York um, and teach at our schools. And I started by saying that, you know, like we're one family, we're here. And, and, and when I said that, I could see that when I said that we were one family, that the, the pain of Israel was my pain because it has been such a painful few months some of their eyes welled up with tears and they what seemed so obvious to me that we're one family wasn't clearly as obvious to them as I had thought it would be. And so that was another reason why I just I just felt my my whole family felt the need to be in Israel immediately. That's amazing. Amazing. Did Let you me clarify one thing that Evelyn and I both wanted to make clear. You went on your own, right? But there are trips for other people who 
don't have as many resources and friends in Israel. Is that correct? Absolutely. I'm amazed at how many people are going. There are synagogues that are taking groups. There are almost, it seems, it feels like lots of organizations that are taking groups. You know, one of the proudest things uh, my family's been involved with is Birthright Excel. Um, a friend of mine, Lori Blitzer, is taking a group of Birthright Excel parents, I think, to Israel. Um, my synagogue, um, Kehilat Jeshrin on the Upper East Side is going. My kids go to school, Ramaz. All of Ramaz High School is is organizing. If you'd like to go over um, a long weekend at the end of January, there's so many organizations and trips. I think that it won't be hard wherever you live to find a way to go and and visit Israel. And as I, I wrote to all my family and friends in a newsletter, you don't need to go and have the most ambitious trip. You could just go to Israel and go to restaurants and take a walk along the Tayelet in Tel Aviv. And, and it it doesn't need, mean, going to Israel right now doesn't mean that you need to go and have such a hard trip. You, you might want to, and you might want to bear witness, and I understand that. But I think any trip to Israel right now, if you could see how empty the airport felt, any trip to Israel is meaningful. Can you uh, uh, please share with us what else you did uh, outside from visiting uh, people, family, and, and friends. You volunteered also, I think. Is that correct? I, I did. I was m mainly inspired by my husband, who's also American, but said he was going to go. He he is flexible. He's worked from home, but even before COVID, he sort of, you know, was a, was ahead of the curve from, from working from home. And he works mainly New York hours. So he felt that he could go and wake up early and volunteer and then work online from uh, later in the day, which is exactly what he's been doing. And so by the time I arrived to meet him, um, he'd already been there for 10 days and sort of tapped into a number of online WhatsApp groups. And each day he was, one day he picked lemons, one day he picked olives. By the time I got there, he'd established a relationship with a farmer um, who had fields. And this was a farm that typically had 50 Arab workers on it each day, and they had none um, because the workers from the West Bank are not allowed into Israel right now. Um, and when the king of Thailand made a deal to get his hostages, the Thai hostages brought back or out of Gaza, he agreed that the Thai workers would leave Israel, which has really left Israel. This was really, this is an attack on Israel's economy. How is Israel supposed to produce and pick, you know, without any of its workers? So I spent three days with a little wire hanger contraption that was about this big, connecting um, young grape leaves that climb up a pole onto a horizontal wire. And so, you know, I, my husband and a friend and I listened to podcasts and we connected wire after wire after wire. Another day I picked oranges, which is so much harder than it looks. Um, the oranges are heavy. You pick them in a bag that's in front of you. You're very weighted down by about 40 oranges. You then walk to this, um, not even far, but there are the, these crates that you dump the oranges into. I can, I can just say that I'm a terrible farmer. Um, everyone I know who looked around was volunteering. We all look like terrible farmers. It is very hard work to be a worker. Um, and I know that the Israeli government is now working out deals with India, with Sri Lanka, certainly with Malawi to bring in workers. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of volunteer opportunities. Um, my husband one day sorted clothing um, from people who had donated it. Another night we volunteered um, at an army base where a friend that we know had volunteered to create a huge barbecue. So I served steak to soldiers who'd been in Gaza for 10 weeks. I mean, 10 weeks, it's it's not a small commitment of time to be at risk. 
Um, there are so many opportunities to volunteer. That's good to know. Um, so how are the people in Israel doing? If I had to sum it up, I would say that the people in Israel are, um, I was inspired by their, by their unity, by their courage, by their grit, by their determination. Um, and at the same time, it's hard not to feel that people are really sad, are really frustrated with being so disappointed by their government, feel let down by the government. Um, it, it's how can you not be depressed? There are a number of problems and however you view it, they're not easy to solve. Um, if, if you say they, they felt let down by the government, uh, is that about the fact that an attack like this was possible and the response was Yes, so I'm not even responding to the broader issues of, of the protests. Um, just that an attack like this could happen, you know, in Israel, in a part of Israel that's Sure, you know, this the Gaza envelope is right next to Gaza, but it's a, it's not a controversial part of Israel. It has been, you know, Israel since modern Israel existed. So I think people do feel that way. Um and and also just the response, you know, the the civilian Israelis, the average Israelis have really stepped in in ways in the last few months that typically a government might and it, it it just found I think average Israelis, most Israelis I spoke with feel that the Israeli government's response has been very flat-footed. Um and I see this is just from my own limited experience of being there for 10 days that Israelis seem to have faith that the IDF will be up for this task, even if it was also very much poorly reflected in its in what happened on October 7th, but that the broader question of the government's ability to govern um, still remains very problematic. And I think that any one of us who has spent time working on projects in America that pertain to the Israeli government can relate that the government, if we were broadly to describe the Israeli government, I would say it's bureaucratic. I would say it's slow to respond. I would say it's inefficient. Um, you know, I used to joke that if I was doing something that I felt the Israeli government should support, should, should support, even if I were to put in the most nimble, accurate request as to why it was in its, its interest, the government's interest to support it, I would be lucky if I got even a small amount of money. And even if that amount of money were committed, I might see it in three to five years. That it's just not been a successful, you know, my favorite joke was I used to, I'd prefer to be in the, the, the line at the DMV in Harlem than have to deal with the Israeli government. Uh, I can imagine what that means. Yes. Uh, we have a DMV in LA that is, you stand ar around the corner of the next street to wait right. until you can get it for hours. So, um, yeah, Phyllis, go ahead. What, unless Evelyn wants to ask another question on this, what I want to switch to, particularly since the news broke today or yesterday, it's always unclear in terms of news release states that Claudine Gay, president of Harvard, has now resigned. But I know, Sarah, that you have been talking in the last few months to a lot of university administrators and donors. And I'd like to talk about the American scene now, which in many cases is played out in European countries too, in terms of the Israeli war. And I just read a, okay, I admit I skimmed it this morning and an opinion piece, so I won't say his name in the foreword, in which 
he thinks that the the, the writer thinks the uh, the resignation of, of of gay will be bad because uh, people will forget it was also plagiarism and they'll think the Jews and the politicians had too much influence on universities in the United States. And I, who am not politically aligned, so I'm going to say, if we're not watching what's being taught in our universities as Americans, then we are really in trouble. And I so disagree with them because we really, if we can't sit on university boards, we need to have politicians and donors be someone, people who are paying attention to what's being taught with our future leaders. Sorry, I don't usually go on a rant, but I was really upset this morning. Go ahead, Sarah. Well, so many things go through my mind. Um, I am, for one, sorry, that's my doorbell. I apologize. Um, I am, for one, not, su I'm only surprised that Claudine Gay lasted as long as she lasted, given the fact that plagiarism charge after plagiarism charge came out. This is um, the this is the president or, of, Harvard. Uh, of Harvard. Yeah, this is of Harvard. I, I guess I would back up and say that when October 7th happened, um, I did very quickly. I had a number of relationships, not a huge number with people involved in administration, in administrations, presidents of universities. Um, and I can just say that in my investigations, I discovered how dysfunctional American universities are. Um, and the big question that occurs to me is who really runs a big organization like Harvard or Penn or NYU? Um, and I do not think that very many people had given that that much thought. Even donors had given not enough thought to that. Who makes decisions? Um, and I have come to see, and I think many, many other people have come to see, that it's not clear who makes these, who runs these organizations. Um, it is clear that the faculties, faculty holds a lot of power. Um, it is clear increasingly that our universities have received massive amounts of money from our, let's call them broadly speaking, our enemies, whether it's Qataris or the Chinese, but the amounts of um, Middle Eastern money and money from people who are not aligned with our values is overwhelming. And typically in my, in my worldview, I would say, if you wanna understand how something works, look at where the money comes from. So I think that's one problem. Um, but I think the people who do not like America and do not like Israel have have played a very long game through the American universities. And, um, you know, they've turned America and academia into an ideological weapon against us. And I think we now, and I broadly speaking, we, I mean, people who love democracy, people who love Western thought, um, people who believe in the importance of teaching our students to think for themselves, we need to play a long game too and take back what matters to us, free thinking, free thought, um, Western values. And that will take a very long time because think of how a university works. Who is currently in our PhD programs? You know, uh, you just have to think about that. And, and when did it become sort of standard that a liberal arts professor might become the head of a university and is a liberal arts professor the best person to run an incredibly complex organization uh, these are all the kinds of questions that i think are now much more common for people to think about but i even think well into early november 
I think very few people were thinking about these questions. And I think the university administrators who I spoke to thought they were doing a fantastic job as long as they weren't Penn and as long as they weren't Harvard, they were doing an amazing job. Um, when point blank, when I asked one of them very early on, I said, you know, tell me about the connection between DEI and what's going on on your Wait, campus. And say what DEI is for those people. Another diversity, th this broad idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion being so important. Um, and, you know, universities now have tens of DEI officers who are training the students and training the faculty and training their boards of trustees and training their administrations. Um, when I asked a university president how this emphasis on diversity and equity and inclusion had played a role in the anti-Semitism that was on campus, she just had no answer for me because she had not thought one drop about it. And I mean, I'll give the broad, the broad answer is that one important tenet of DEI is that the world is divided into oppressed and oppressor, colonized and colonizer, um, even, you know, white and brown. Yeah, these ideas are really simplistic, silly, nonsensical ideas that have become au courant on every campus. Um, how does it work out for Jews then? That has not worked out well for Jews. That has not worked out well for How Jews. How come? Because this idea that Jews are the oppressor and the Palestinians are the oppressed, um, the Jews are white, for example. Even though we know that in Israel, Jews are the minority of Jews in Israel, are the minority are white. The majority yeah, for me, for are me as for me as a European Jew, a child of Holocaust survivors, it's it doesn't make sense at all to see us as white, where Hitler saw us as not white at all. Of and, course. And, and killed us for us for it. And having just come back from Israel, I mean, I was amazed at the beauty of the color of people's skin in Israel. People for in Israelis of are from such a diverse background. I mean, obviously Ethiopian, but Yemenite and Moroccan. And yes, you know, very sort of ivory white the way I look from Poland and Lithuania and Russia, wherever my great grandparents came from to America. But so it's very America centric to to categorize it is, Jews. It is very America cent yeah. centric to think that. Um, but these ideas are are at the bedrock of of DEI that that is the simplistic worldview. Um, and, and one other point that I think is very important is that there is a, a lack of real knowledge as to the fact that we Jews have a historical connection to the land of Israel. We are not colonizers. Um, that is just the silliest idea. There's also implied in a, in a colonial narrative is that we were taking something from the land, do you know? Like, we're, are we taking the gold from the land of Israel? Are we taking the oil from the land of Israel? You know, so two points. Firstly, we've this is our land. This is our historical homeland that we have had every morning, not religious, but Jews wake up and pray to Zion. It is our homeland. At the end of our seders, we say next year in Jerusalem, there is a longstanding historical connection between Jews and the land of Israel. So... That does not fit into this simplistic narrative of colonized and colonizer. And then this other idea, when when we got to, when we 
took Israel in 1948 and a piece of it we were given, it was certainly not filled with riches. Let's let's just repeat that sentence. It's important for our audience. When the UN gave uh, a, well, a piece of Israel, a piece of the land to a the piece Jews, of the land. They and gave a piece us of the land, land to the Arabs, okay? And the Arabs did not accept the uh, UN division. Okay, just wanted to put that out there. So let's yes. remind people. Correct. Yes, it's, it's helpful to remind everyone of this history. Even now it's helpful to remind everyone of this history that the UN gave us this land. We accepted this land. You know, over and over the Palestinians have been offered land. They've been offered land in 48 and, you know, over and over in the 90s. And the dates go in the 60s. They've been offered a land. But the land that we were offered, the land that we accepted, was not filled with riches. I went to a kibbutz in the south, Yad Mordechai, one of the oldest kibbutzes in Israel. And I went to their museum and saw pictures of the pipelines being laid, the water pipelines being laid in the 40s. And it made me realize how much love has been poured into this little land that is so green and beautiful. And if you go and and every bit of Palestinian land could be just as beautiful. Gaza could be beautiful. There's no reason that it's not other than for the fact that they've had crummy, corrupt, feeble leadership um, and that the that the people don't want peace. Right. Um if we if we look back uh, if we go back to america to what's happening on, on universities um to me but please tell me if you see it differently to me it doesn't look like uh, um um a coincidence that people studying there don't know anything about the history of the Jewish people in Israel um, and accept the narrative that it is that the, the Jews came there 150 years ago and stole the land from the Palestinians who were already there for a long time, which is not the truth, but that's the narrative right now. To me, that's not a coincidence since... Um, we, we we have this diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, wave in, in, in universities that teach about the oppressors versus the oppressed. Um, we have it actually since 2020, since George, George Floyd was killed and, and we have a wave of um, um, anti-racist, ideology to to set things straight in American um, uh, society. And so the 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 Jew, everybody is categorized in a racial category or an or a gender category and and in an oppressed or oppressor category. and the Jews were categorized by these ideologists as oppressors. Um, and it, but it's not a coincidence that students for justice in Palestine, which is which is connected with Hamas, it was started by people who are affiliated with Hamas. It has two hundred branches in America on American campuses, and they rewrite the narrative from Zionist to 
anti-Zionist. And that is what our students in America, who are leaders for tomorrow of tomorrow, are learning right now. So this is a big wedge between American future leadership and Israel and Zionism that is being created here. And I don't see it as a coincidence. I personally see it as a strategy. Do you agree with that? You see it, do I see it as a strategy? I I do, but I, I mean, I also see, I guess I also wanna be a little more specific that I see there, there are many universities that are not steeped in this. Um, and so we're certainly hearing about the universities where things are the worst, um, but there have been universities that have certainly had much more comfortable environments for, you know, freedom loving students, for Western civilization loving students, for Jewish students. Um, I'm working with a number of um, foundations and individuals who are determined to to support those academic institutions, there are lots of them. Um, to turn the ones that might be very good into excellent institutions, um, to work to make sure that the students who are at the institutions that are supporting liberal values and Western values and its Jewish students successfully have the best internships, have the best admissions. Um, there is a lot of work to be done. And I do believe that it's a long game because our enemies have played a very long game in the strategy that you describe. Let me just say, I have read some of the uh, projects that Sarah's uh, thinking about or already doing. And one of the things that she just mentioned, but only in passing that she might want to talk about is hiring away. We'll get to that one, but hiring away from Ivy leagues, some of the really fantastic professors and bringing them to other universities and then that are much more uh, open to free thinking and then helping elevate those universities in, in that way. Do you want to talk right. about that a little? Sure. I mean, I think there are, and I've spoken to some, and I imagine there are many more professors who are all of a sudden looking at, not all of a sudden, you know, it's like the frog that's been slowly boiled, but really don't recognize the institutions that they loved for years and years, because all of a sudden, you know, you sort of slowly think this is a phase and you think, oh, this DEI stuff will go away. And then all of a sudden you look and you look at the amount of money your institution is spending on DEI. And you look at the people who are being hired to run your organizations and institutions that you love. There are many, many professors who are sick and tired of it. And I would say a that there are even a higher percentage of professors inside the fields of, of the sciences, of the research, of the more um, technical parts of the organizations who are just fed up. Um, I do not think it will be so difficult to hire people away. Um, I think, you know, I always give a, a little example that's funny, but when I was a kid growing up in Manhattan in the 80s and 90s, you know, Tulane and Emory were considered safety schools. For, for a lot of smart kids. And they are now really difficult kids to get, really difficult schools to get into. Reputations change. And it is possible that this is a moment where people think to themselves, what am I really looking for when I send, as a parent, what am I really looking for when I send my child to a university? And, you know, the main thing is to get educated. The main thing is to have a social group. Um, I do think there will be real changes as to where kids go to school, um, Phyllis, I know you, you mentioned, and I really 
like the idea of more kids going to school in Israel. There are a number of universities in Israel working on creating three-year undergraduate programs um, for English-speaking students. I do think that will gain in popularity. I think there are schools that we haven't heard of that will become popular. I think schools that are, you know, what I would have called middling kinds of schools will really take off. Um, I think I think there are a lot of very smart people now really taking a look more closely at which organizations, which institutions make sense receiving support, which haven't been that will be receiving support, new ways of improving institutions that we loved. And by the way, I want to be clear, I am not giving up on Harvard and Penn, if those are the two worst offenders, these are places that need to be fixed and loved. And our smartest, great kids, if that's where they see themselves because they want to be in Boston or Philly or who knows what, you know, Penn has a really thriving Orthodox community. We need to take our spots in those schools and 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 make them our own again. And not just because we're Jewish, but because we're American, because we love Western values, because we believe in freedom and democracy. And, and we believe in, in our children being taught to think, not what to think. These are important fights and we're up for them. Although let's go to your other idea, which I think is so important. The responsibility of the American Jewish community, and then we'll get to your idea, of making sure that our kids, when they go to college, are prepared by, by their own level of knowledge. I'm not talking observance, right? I'm talking knowledge. So that when yeah. someone says X to them and they know it's not right, like how instead of reacting in anger, they can react with information. So let's talk about your, your I think this fabulous idea for boot camp for American and then eventually European Jewish kids. Yes. Um, so I have an idea that all American kids, all American Jewish kids, now all know about birthright, right? And it was my dad, Michael Steinhardt, and Charles Bronfman who had this idea to start birthright that all American Jewish kids should have the ability to go to Israel for 10 days for free. It's it's their birthright. Um, and I say that American Jewish kids, when they get to campus, they typically don't say, am I going to go on a birthright trip? They say, when am I going to go on a birthright trip? And I wanted to create a prequel. I want to create a prequel to birthright, a second semester senior year in high school experience for all American Jewish kids within America That's to important. begin within America to begin to understand what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be part of this people. Um, and I think that it's a extremely complicated because I live my I live in a lot of different worlds, but I was raised in a very secular world. And I think for most of my peers who I went to a secular prep school with, being Jewish was just like checking the religion box, you know, like were you did you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah? You know, are you Christian? Are you Jewish? There was no understanding of Jews as a people, no understanding of Jews that have, because they have a language, they have a civilization, they have a culture, they have a history, there's a shared bond. When I said to my Hebrew public Hebrew teachers, we're one people, your pain is my pain. That is so natural to me, but I think that's confusing. And it's certainly confusing in light of all the DEI narrative that we spoke about. Um, so my fantasy is that Every American Jewish kid before they get to campus would have a week long retreat experience from Sunday to Sunday in which they would learn about what it means 
to be Jewish, that there's a country, they would learn some the history of the state of Israel. Um, they would learn why we have a historical connection to the state of Israel. Most importantly, they would have fun. They'd meet other Jewish kids from around the country. The programming would start maybe at 12 or 1 p.m. It would go until one or two in the morning. It would be aimed at an average 17-year-old um, in America. And there would be different locations for these for these week-long retreats. Um, and having been the mother to many second semester seniors, it is not a very productive time. It is a time where you can really learn um, something new. Um, you can make new friends. It's an exciting time, but it's also a time in, in our own American experience where there's some flexibility, there's some freedom, there's some, some mental space, I guess I'm trying to say. Let's just for European uh, countries who do it a little differently. By or, that time, yeah, or, or or Latin American or no, but or I wanted to Australia. just make one one clear thing here. What Sarah talks about in in America, most kids have filed their college applications by let's say the end of January. So whereas opposed in other countries that may not be. So that's part of what she's saying. After they've spent all their time on college interviews and applications. They have freer time, so that this would be a good time. And do you, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Evelyn. And I wanted to say something, but go ahead. Do you see this? Because birthright trips are made from all over the world, right? That's true. Birthright trips are from all over the world. But what I really notice is that when American Jewish kids get to American campuses, they are somehow expected to defend Israel. They are somehow expected to do a job that frankly they are, to say that they're ill-equipped is an understatement. They barely know anything. And this these, is are, the kids, same. This these is the are same. kids that otherwise in other areas of their life know a lot. They know yeah. a lot about the countries in which they come from. They're smart and educated except for this gaping hole. And I even understand, and I understand why Birthright's been such a success, because it's exciting to go to Israel. And if you've never been to Israel, you should go, and everyone gets excited about it. But I have always felt that one of the biggest failures of Birthright, and I love Birthright, but one of the biggest failures is not really thinking through what happens when American Jewish kids come back to America. And I know Birthright is worldwide, but I'm American, so I, I, I really think through the American Jewish experience. They come back, and then what? What's well, waiting for them? You know, if you happen to be on campus, there's Hillel and Chabad on campus. I happen to be a huge fan of Chabad on campus and think they do terrific, terrific work. I cannot say enough good things. But if you're 23 or 25, what's waiting for you? I certainly can tell you what we've tried. You know, I played a role in starting one table. Um, there's Moshe House. There, there are experiences waiting for you, but it's not obvious to secular American Jews what's waiting for you. 50 years ago, you know, maybe you would join a synagogue. Um, maybe you might join your local federation. These are not things American Jewish kids are doing today. So we haven't solved that. And so my, my real complaint is that we send American Jewish kids to college and they know nothing. And how do we how do we fill that in? And we can get a lot done, not everything, but we could get a lot done in terms of creating Jewish pride and knowledge in one intensive week. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I think it's a very good idea. And I also think it's exactly the same situation for Jewish students outside the United States. 
And um, well, the idea would be that if this works here, Evelyn, European Jewish communities could emulate it. The, or or elsewhere in Latin America or yes, Australia. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I should include Latin America. Right. But one thing, though, that I do think is different in European communities and in Latin America, um, and it's country to country, is that in those places, typically, I think more than in America, Jews know they're Jews. Um, no, you disagree? Yeah. But and, there's a, there are more centralized Jewish um, leadership rather than having all these different organizations like they have in no, America. No, Or like the Central Conference of Jews in Germany. All Orthodox synagogues. So, what about not Orthodox? That those well, are more and not affiliated. And when they, these students go to to university, they're held responsible for Israel as well. They have to explain. Uh, they have to answer the question: Do you support Israel? And if you do, you're we 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 exile you from our group. You know, same thing. Um. No, the, the most, yeah, I think you're right, Sarah. I think most people of the current young generation um, are are not participating in anything, in any activity that is organized by whatever Jewish organization. Right. Um, and yeah. On campus, what exists yeah. for the, the pro-Palestinian movement on campus is very well organized. It often comes well funded, well funded, well funded, well organized, made to look grassroots, even though it is not. Right. There are students who are sent from countries, from the Middle Eastern countries, to be on campus, not to finish in four years like we all want our kids to finish in, but to finish in a long amount of time because that's a lot of years for them to be active on campus and organizing on campus. Um, and it's scary for a Jewish 18 or 20 year old who doesn't know that much to stand up and say, hey, you know, that narrative isn't true, you know, and to comfortably say, for example, you know, you're right. It's really awful to imagine that 750,000 Arabs were kicked out of this land. But did you know that nearly a million Jews were kicked out of Arab lands at around the same time? That, that's a complicated conversation to have. But you can't have it if you don't know the facts. If you don't know it. Right. Exactly. And especially in America, where we're very Ashkenazi, meaning Eastern Europe, right. Germany, century, yes. that knowledge about Sephardic Jews, my kids went to a Sephardic middle school, uh, it's very limited. So they have no idea that Jews lived in those countries like Libya, Tunisia, Morocco, blah, 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 blah. And uh, Iran. I will just tell Syria. you that um, someone I know whose father was born in Egypt, four different kids, they all have different kinds of names because supposedly that would protect them. So one has an Arabic name, one has a French name. I mean, because they hoped they could stay in Egypt, but ultimately they were all kicked out. But I, I, I bet you if you went... To American college, to any American Jewish group of kids, the percentage of Jews who would even know what a Sephardic Jew is here in America would be so small. And that's our responsibility that we haven't done a good job. Yeah. And that's so true. that's why that's why I think your program is so important. Because in that week, we talk about Mizrahi and Sephardim and Ethiopia. It just, is this is does this program exist already or are you developing it or 
What's the it status? does not exist. I would love to say, you know, it's on a list of, it, it's an idea that I had actually before COVID and I would love to say that it's in development, but at the moment it's, it's just an idea, you know, at the Steinhardt foundation, we have a lot of ideas. That means some become, some we go for and some we don't, we're trying to figure out how to allocate our energies and resources. Um, at the moment, for example, we are very excited about elevating Hebrew language. Um, it's hard for me to believe that you cannot learn Hebrew pretty much anywhere in the country very well. So one of the reasons why you can't do that is that there are not enough Hebrew teachers. Um, so we're trying to work with um, pro educational programs, places that offer the masters of teaching a certain language and add Hebrew into it all across the country. Um, another project we're working on is the idea of Shiva. Um, most American Jews don't don't observe Shiva and they don't observe Shiva. They don't belong to a synagogue. They wouldn't know how could to you, Could you that. explain for our non-Jewish listeners what you're talking yes. about? Yes. Um, so when someone dies, uh, traditional Jews observe seven days of Shiva. Their house becomes a Shiva house. After the burial. After the burial, people come, you know, friends and family come and greet and comfort the the people who are, who are mourning their relative. Um but that takes a lot of coordination and it's no one thinks about it if you belong to a synagogue because there's a committee within the synagogue who comes and and helps you because otherwise you might feel that you have to host people for a week when the opposite is meant to happen. Everyone is meant to be there to comfort you. So for a lot of the programs that we at Steinhardt support, such as um, Birthright Excel and One Table, um, we would like the people who who care, who are young and who are really committed to the Jewish community, we would like to give them the opportunity to host Shiva all across the country. That sounds ambitious, but through One Table, which is an organization that we started to help young people host Shabbat in their homes and to make Shabbat a habit, Friday night dinners a habit in their lives, we have a committed, hundreds and hundreds of a committed cadre of Jews in their 20s and 30s who are very committed to Jewish life. That doesn't mean that they belong to a synagogue, although some may, but they might like to go into someone's home in Philadelphia, for example, if that's where they live and help them and be responsible for turning their home into a Shiva home um, and helping them observe Shiva because Shiva is really viewed as one of the most um, meaningful parts of Jewish life filled with ritual and wisdom that could be very relatable to secular American Jews. So I've digressed into, into no, another I, tangent. I wanted to take this opportunity of speaking to Sarah by saying, I have a, a, young, a Santa Monica College student, Santa Monica College is two years here in um, LA, who's been very active on her own fighting anti-Semitism. And Santa Monica College uses the UCLA Hillel. So we have a Zoom call today with the um, head of Hillel for an idea that I have, although I want the students to do it. In terms of education, yes, there's a library at Hillel. I doubt anyone goes in to it. So the concept of a salon in which students curate each month, this is, um, there's a room where they meet apparently, you know, like a lounge and put out books, you know, books speak to you. So instead of sitting in a library, if each month is a different topic, let's say the topic is Israeli, uh, 1948, one month, and the student curator chooses the books, they, you put them around the room, you can read them if you want, and then you have a salon, 
like they used to have in Europe of, you know, literary discussion led by someone and talk about it. That is a way to bring kids together using resources that are already there and you just have to do it. So I'm hoping the Halo director says yes, then we'll film it and we'll share it with other places or Amazing. with you. Amazing. There's a wonderful article in the um, a journal called Sapir, S-A-P-I-R, um, and Daniel Bonner, who runs the Singer Foundation's Philanthropy, Jewish Philanthropy, wrote a wonderful article about how when when Jews do well, books do well, and how the Jew, Jews and books are linked that I think you might enjoy. Um, and if you'd like more information about the Shiva Project, you could look online for something called Shomer Collective. Um, so Shomercollective.org.com? I think .org. I think okay, I'll, just, I'll look it up and put it at the bottom. Shomer Collective. I want to give everyone their proper credit um, because a lot of, I have to say that I'm inspired that a lot of foundations are really coming up with great, great responses and great ways to engage engage Jews who who might otherwise not be engaged. And and in this moment, you know, there's I'm not someone to make lemonade out of lemons. It's been such a difficult moment. But I do think that there's an opportunity because I do think young people are realizing maybe for the first time in their lives, I'm 48, in fact, and have never felt anything like this. Um, so everyone below me certainly hasn't felt everyone, everyone younger than I am certainly hasn't felt anything like this. And the question is, is this a moment for people to realize, hey, I'm Jewish? And, and how can we turn this into a moment of Jewish pride? Because we do need to build Jewish pride to be able to withstand what we're going through right now. I agree with that. Evelyn, do you have any other questions nope. before I give Sarah her, her chance for last thoughts? Although that was a really good last thought. But those were my last thoughts. I, I would leave it at that. Okay. So we thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing um, your experiences in Israel and your hopes for the future. We thank our listeners. We hope you're inspired to do something grassroots in your own community. And if you want to know more about Evelyn, myself, and our other projects, you can go to Never Again Is Now podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And as we end all episodes, we say, please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.